like it when our church is represented by different histories and uh, there's a little bit of Anglicanism coming out in Anna there, a little bit of liturgical um, recognition that this book is not merely a newspaper but it is the word of God to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God that we that we we have it, that we can read it, that we can understand God through it. I want to add my word of welcome as well to you guys uh, that Tim and uh, and Beck have expressed. You looking at me? I just had a moment where I looked at my notes and went, "Have I got? Have I pulled up the right sermon?" <laughs> I just had to rip down through the page and go, "Yes, I have." That's uh, good. Hey, um, one of the things that uh, we, we, are, we, we, we are trying to call into reality, one of the things that we're trying to do here, or we want to come and see come into reality here at Freeway, is that by the grace of God, and grace has been mentioned a lot this morning, that you would come to know Jesus uh, personally as both your Savior and also your, your sustainer. And as an implication of that, of that new reality uh, that we call faith, uh, that you have in your life, uh, that we would order our lives around that, order our, our lives around knowing Jesus, and then out of that, live out that deep, deep joy. Speak out that deep joy. And so knowing Jesus and making him known is both our vision and, and our mission here at freeway and what's been kind of cool what's been really cool is to see that both those things those ideas if you like that vision and mission are being birthed out in this book of galatians as we go along that by the gospel we know jesus and in the gospel we we live with him so i've kind of enjoyed watching that come into being hey we're going to pray and then we'll get into our passage this morning loving god we want to thank you that you bring us here together you unite us uh, in, in your son we come uh, not here because we all share the same political ideas we come here not because we all uh, earn the same amount of money but we come here because we all know and love Jesus and you bring us together to nurture us in that to build us up in that and to strengthen us in that that we might go and be uh, your renewed your restored uh, image bearer of what it looks like to live for Christ in a broken world and we pray that this morning uh, you would lead our hearts and our minds to truth that shapes our lives as we read and learn uh, from your word. Hey, uh, as Tim mentioned uh, last week, we asked the question, who, who is it that needs the gospel? And we were reminded that the answer to that question is me. Every hour of every day of of every minute, of every second, we, we need to preach the gospel into our own hearts, lest we allow something else uh, to drive our lives, to shape our lives, uh, to, to determine how it is that we have fellowship together, how it is that we move toward each other. And I thought, uh, because that question went so well last week, I'd ask you another question this week. So, we read, if you look away, I see some, if you look away, you look down at the ground, I guarantee you, you're volunteering to answer this question. Okay, that's what used to happen to me at school, and I'm kind of carrying it on here. All right, I'm just going to pick someone out. Um, 
Yeah, sweat. Well, what, what is this gospel? I'm not going to actually ask you to stand up and tell me. That's the question. What is the gospel? What, what is the gospel that we keep talking about? What, what is it? It's, the Paul, it's Paul's question, in a way, in this letter. What, what is this gospel? Because that's what saved you. So what is it? Was it more law? Was it more knowledge about Jesus or some knowledge about Jesus and then some law in with that? Like, what is this gospel? What the gospel is and its content and indeed its implications on life are at the heart of this letter so far. Paul is concerned that the gospel be preserved in its, in its authenticity, in its original content, uh, in, its, in its implications. So this morning we're going to be looking back over verses 15 to 16 because we've said that we need to drink from it every minute of every hour of every day. Because if we're going to live these gospel-shaped lives, then we must be clear on on what the the power of the gospel is that helps us uh, live these gospel-shaped lives. I was... I've been thinking about this, about whether or not to go back over this question of what the gospel is earlier this week. Because, you know, we outlined what it was in week one. And, then, and ever since then, I've been saying things like, you know, the gospel, this, the gospel, that, don't distort the gospel. And I must say, I did say in week one that you need to come each week so you build the picture so you don't get lost or, or miss something. But I was thinking, maybe we need to outline it again because, let's be honest, uh, maybe you know what? Hey, once a month is the is is what people call regular attendance at church these days. So maybe there's people who missed it. Doesn't describe what I'd call someone who's life shaped by the gospel, but that's the reality, and I accept it. So just as I was thinking about, hey, do we need to keep going over clarifying what this gospel is? I got this email from someone in the church. I get emails about my sermons, which is kind of cool. Hey, Mason. I know you outlined it in week one. This is a summary. But could we please continue to unpack the gospel each week? So I thought to myself, sure. Your emails lining up with my thoughts. We'll call that a coincidence if you like. Or we'll call it something else. Uh, at least I know I'm going to make one person happy this week. Which is always good. So what, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is essentially news. Good news. The gospel is not good advice. It's not uh, primarily a description of a way of life. It's not something that we do, but it's something that has been done for us, that we have been made aware of, that, that we've heard that we must respond to. We get this word gospel in our scripture from the Greek word euangelion, good news, uh, or euangeliazo, which means to proclaim good news. I know I've said that wrong for all you Greek scholars, but 90, 99.5% of you don't have a clue. It's most often used, these two words, this word group, to describe uh, or, or used to declare news of something that's happened to rescue and deliver people from peril. Uh, to announce a victory in a battle over an enemy. And a euangelistes 
is someone who proclaims the euangelion, the good news. And they would do just that. They would herald the news that liberty and freedom from a particular peril, from an from a, from a invading army or whatever, has been achieved by a king, by a Caesar, by a ruler, by someone on their behalf. Good news. Fear not. The biblical writers took this word and applied it to the, to the news, the message that Jesus proclaimed about himself with respect to him being our saviour, with respect to him rescuing us from peril. The gospel is the message from Jesus, our true king, our true ruler, if you like, that we have been rescued from peril, from the peril of our sin, by faith in him. That is, by faith in what he did on our behalf, by faith in the rescue that he achieved on our behalf. What is the nature of that faith? What is the content? What is the, the concrete uh, nature of that faith? P- people often talk about faith like it's just, oh, it's just a leap of faith. Who knows what's going to happen? That's rubbish with respect to the Christian faith. Faith is concrete. Faith is known. It has a concrete... Uh, can't think of a word. Thing. Ah, you know what that thing is? The gospel. That Jesus in his death on a cross bore the punishment for all sin and in his resurrection conquered the claim of death and was vindicated and affirmed as the source of eternal life in his resurrection. Our faith takes us out of one reality of being enslaved to sin and death and transports us, transforms us into another reality of new life in Christ through faith in him the gospel is the news that God is rescuing sinners from the peril from their peril of their rebellion against God and that peril is nothing left less than the wrath of God that's what we're being rescued from the wrath of God to come at the end of human history you read about it in first Thessalonians you see that's the great problem that humanity has that's the great uh, thing that we face we live under a curse a pronouncement against sin some of that curse uh, we feel now in that being alienated from God leads to relational dysfunction with God and with each other and even with ourselves we, we, we feel that now in this life we feel shame and fear in relationships that we're not created to experience those things we experience the pronouncement against sin god's wrath in the physical world too in what we encounter we encounter sorrow painful toil physical degeneration uh even death because of sin and rebellion against god uh you know we read about that story in the garden of eden we live in a world filled with suffering and disease poverty racism natural disasters War, aging, and even death. And, and it's all tied up in the wrath of God. Which is summarized for us in Romans. This way, that God hands us over to our own foolishness. We are now ruled by sin, our sinful nature and not a relationship with God. So ruled by our sinful nature, we unleash all of these things. 
or most of them, whether you like it or not, whether you feel uncomfortable with this or not, is not the issue. The issue is, if this is true, can you be rescued from it? Can you be rescued from the wrath of God? And if you can, how can you be rescued from the wrath of God? Because while we feel the effects of sin in this life, how we spend eternity is determined by a lies in whether or not we can be rescued by our self-defined position of rebellion against God, which is what brings the wrath of God. Can we be rescued from God's wrath? His judgment towards sin. What can rescue those who simply don't feel like they need rescuing or simply don't want to be rescued? And the answer to that question is the grace of God in Jesus that leads to faith. The undeserved, redeeming action of God towards sinners in Jesus Christ to rescue them, to to, to deliver them from the coming wrath of God. Hey, think about this. You're all like, man, I think you've said that word wrath about 600 times this morning, Mason. I've been in church 400 years and haven't heard it that many times. If you're feeling all out of shape about the idea that God holds a position of wrath towards sin, the message of the gospel is this. The offended party is the one who has decided to do something about it, is the one who has decided to absorb the, the sin, absorb the, the crime, the punishment for the crime. He has planned to deal with sin. And he has a plan to deal with sin that does not sweep it under the carpet, but rather satisfies his holy demands for justice. That sin be punished, while not crushing us under its implications. Implementation. Boy, struggling with the words this morning. But rather it crushes him on our behalf. That is good news, is it not? That is the gospel. The gospel then is the news about what has been done by Jesus to put us in right relationship with God. Gospel is news. News about Jesus. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, is the victorious remover of sin, guarantor of eternal life in the heart of the believer. It's not a list of things to do. It's not stuff that we have to get about doing, but rather it's news. It's news about what has been done. So listen, how, how is that gospel applied? Do, do you go to church for a certain period of time? Do, do you memorize a certain amount of scripture? Do you clean up your life so it looks good, so it looks like the symptoms that we talk about that come from the gospel? No, you literally don't do any of that. You literally hear it. And God, in his grace, illuminates your heart to its truth, that you need rescuing. And it's causing repentance. Not repentance that crushes you, but repentance that liberates you, resulting in faith that accepts Jesus as your saviour. In its simplest form, uh, as J.I. Packer puts it, this is the gospel. God saves sinners. He's saving them. That's the news. He's not leaving us, you, me, in our condemnation. He's doing something to save us, to rescue us by grace alone, through faith alone, 
in Christ alone. In verses 15 to 16, Paul frames this gospel in forensic terms of justification, which is the gracious act of God by which God declares us permanently, irreversibly in right relationship with him. That's what that word justification means. And the basis of this justification has not been our rule keeping, anything we've done. Nor is it that God is just a big softy who sweeps sin under the carpet, but rather we have been justified by our faith in Jesus' work on our behalf. Jesus kept the rules perfectly. No, no sin is found in Jesus. Both Peter, who, who Paul is actually speaking to about this thing at the moment, how are we justified, Peter? Well, by a perfect saviour, both Peter in 1 Peter 2 and John in 1 John 3 says this, no sin in Jesus. So he qualifies to die on our behalf and to take our punishment for sin. God takes his innocence and his righteousness of Jesus and he applies it to us. By faith, this application is applied to us by faith and now the result of that is that you are at peace with God. Because you're not facing his wrath, his judgment. You're back in relationship with him, or in relationship you never had. J.I. Packer has a helpful summary to justify uh, in the Bible means to declare of a man on trial that he is not liable uh, to any penalty, but is entitled to all the privileges due those who have kept the law. Justifying is the act of a judge pronouncing the opposite sentence of condemnation, one of acquittal and legal immunity. Faith alone in Jesus justifies you before God, gives you the position that you are not liable to any penalty, but rather you are entitled to all the privileges due those who have kept the law. Who has kept the law? Jesus. You are now entitled to all the privileges that he experiences, that he has, the relationship he has with the Father the eternal life that he will live in, that table that Beck talked about, all of them now yours. The law condemned you, trying to keep rules. Good rules, though. The rules aren't bad, but they expose your sin. But faith in Jesus has, as the law keeper on your behalf and the sin bearer on your behalf has pronounced you justified, entitled to all those things. That's the gospel, Yeah. In verses 17 and 18, Paul kind of, he pushes his point. He's talking to Peter, you know, because we've got to remember, Peter's kind of, he's pulled back from eating with the Gentiles. he's, He's not living authentically with the gospel that he knows. It says, hey, look, there's no boundaries anymore. If you're in Christ, you eat with people. You share life with them. And it doesn't affect your relationship with God. Hey, Peter, what what did you find in Jesus what did you find in our Saviour? Was it more rules, more law, more you have to do this, you have to do less of that, you have to clean that up, stop doing this? What endeavour did Jesus tell you to join him in in order to be justified with God? What is it that Jesus, what is it that Jesus uh, had asked us to participate in to help him earn our justification. Oh, oh, Peter, I'm not totally sure 
um, the all-sufficient, um, satisfying atonement for your sin, uh, maybe, you, maybe you could do maybe, I don't know, 15 Hail Marys or something or other. Or, or maybe you might, hey, look, this could be cool. Why don't you dress neatly when you come to church? Or maybe you could help out with, like, could you, could you do something to help me out with this? Maybe you could uh, attend church every Sunday. Yeah, that'd get you over the line. See, Jesus has got the back of those once a monthers. He knows that's not how you are saved. Hey, what kind of a pathetic saviour needs your help at any level? Matt Chandler helps us or tries to make sense of this tricky passage. It's a tricky passage. You've got Jesus, a servant, a minister of sin. Uh, through one law I died to another law. And, and, and Matt Chandler, by allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, takes what, takes what Paul says in, in Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 3, and, and he uses it to help us out here about what is Paul talking about here? And he says... Was Jesus like Moses in Corinthians? A minister of death. That's how Moses is described in this Corinthians passage. Why is he described like that? Because he brought the law, good though it was, to Israel. And when he kind of walked, he didn't write it, but he he delivered it. He was the minister who delivered it, you see. And when he turned up with it, it was the hard evidence that they were sinful, that they deserved death. Sounds a bit harsh to call Moses a minister of death. But that was the net result of what the law was. Hey, um, you know how you feel bad about sleeping with your mate's wife? Well, that's because it's sinful. Hey, you, know how you, hey, you know how lying and stealing destroys relationships? You know, don't, don't lie, don't steal. That's because it's sinful. See, the law is putting down the rules and telling us we're sinful. You know, when you worship something that you built with your hands, which is just, to me, just absurdly illogical. I'm going to build something with my hands and I'm going to worship what I made. It's just kind of dumb. We might laugh, but we do it all the time. We build our work, we build our career, and we worship it. You build it with your hands and you worship that, you feel alienated from God. That's because it's sinful. It's against our design of being the image bearer of God, of how we're supposed to live before God. These things are sinful, and the law exposes that. And now here's a bunch of practices for you to adhere to, to show you understand the seriousness and the consequences of being sinful. That it's death. That it cuts you off from God. It alienates you from God. It it, it alienates you from each other. The law shows us how we are far from God, We don't measure up to his standards. The law uh, shows us the grounds on which we are justly and rightly condemned and face the wrath of God. They're good, these laws. If they're kept, they lead to human flourishing. But here's what we find. We constantly fall short all the time of keeping these laws. The law isn't bad or evil. In itself, but it exposes our evil, our badness. And so enshrined in it is a way that regulates how people, how sinful people uh, live with God. Clean this, don't eat that, burn this. Don't go in that room or you'll die. Don't forget you are sinful and God is holy. And so it, it creates space and distance between us and God. It reminds us that we are not fully in his presence 
It reminds us that we are sinful and it reminds us that we continually need rescuing. Hey, Mason, how'd you go with keeping the law this week? Yeah, it was good till Friday. And, and then I was watching the football and just lost my mind. No, I didn't because Carlton won. Um, and then I was proud. And so, oh, you see? Paul is reminding Peter, Jesus did not come to bring more law, a new way of approaching the law. He didn't bring more ways of finding out we are sinful. He's not a minister of death. He's not a minister of sin. We already had enough of those things. Jesus came to remove condemnation over us that the law exposes. Jesus is the grace of God to deal with uh, the stain of our sins. You see, good news. Gospel. He is not a servant of sin. He is not someone who brings more rules to condemn us in sin. No, he brings a new way to make peace with God. And it's not rules. It's not regulations. It's not more ceremonies. It's faith in him. Jesus on the cross tears down the systems of rules that we have been given to deal with our sin. And he becomes the the, the new system, the means by which we are made right with God. He brings grace, not more rules. Why? Oh, why? (laughs) Like out of your mind. Why would you rebuild something that leads to death? Why would you rebuild something that you know doesn't save you? Doesn't merit your... It just keeps exposing that you're sinful. Why would you return to trying to save yourself? And in doing so, saying simply saying that Jesus isn't enough. I'll do a little bit of rule keeping. Uh, to seal the deal. No, you, you are not saved by your efforts, Peter. Us, you, me. You are saved by grace-fueled faith. Faith in Jesus is how to live a life unto God. Not keeping rules. Faith in Jesus. White knuckles will eventually let go under fatigue. But God's grace is a grip that's unbreakable. And establishes peace because it's forged in his promises, not our efforts. Faith is not an effort, not an endeavor, not something you mustered up. Faith is trust in Jesus, a gracious gift, a provision. And rule keepers lose their mind over this because faith in Jesus is the only requirement. Like that's, that's, that's crazy dangerous. Being justified on, on the grounds of, of, of faith in Jesus. What's to stop someone with that knowledge of a permanent acquittal from just going, oh, well, my faith allows me to live any way I choose, licentiously, whatever. We, we need ways of keeping people honest and dealing with our, our failures because we know we can't keep the law. This, this, faith, this faith in Jesus just feels too easy. I need some way to be involved, uh, some way to earn, some way to prove, some way to distinguish me from, from all those others, some way that I know. I need to rebuild in my self-righteousness. Faith sounds dangerous, sounds easy. That is not humility. That is pride. Faith crushes our pride. We need to trust. Paul answers that concern in verses 19 and 21. 
by describing an overmastering passion, if you like, in which we now live. The gospel is not merely just the ABC of how you get saved, but it's the A to Z of, of, of gospel-shaped life, of how to live within it. In verse 19, Paul says, The law killed me. It was a sentence of death. It, it, it kept, kept showing me that I deserve condemn, condemnation. But in dying to that law as a means of my salvation and replacing it with another law, the law of faith in Jesus, I now truly live to God. There's a freedom in that. A new law is in operation. It's a greater law. And by it, I died to the old laws. By God's grace, I've been overmastered. I've, I've been transformed by, with faith in Jesus. This is a total reconstruction, totally revolutionary, of, of every line, of every expression and practice that every religious movement has ever understood. This is where Christianity and its gospel is unique and, and imbued with grace. All religion, all religious thought has always and, and continues to in its various forms have all agreed that you please God by how you behave, by how you act, by what you do for Him. Ask anyone, walk out of this building now and ask anyone, what do you think uh, you have to do to get to heaven? And I guarantee you they'll say things like, well, you've got to live a good life. Yeah? You don't harm anyone. Well, not too much anyway. You don't do this, you do this, you do that. Rules, law, legalism, ultimately self-righteousness. I will make myself good enough to get to heaven. I'll do something. Religion has always been do, keep, earn, pay off. That is the law of religion. Christianity overmasters that law with grace that leads to faith. Because grace says Jesus has done everything. Jesus kept rules and he is righteous. Jesus died for our sins, satisfied God's wrath. Jesus is raised to life in fellowship with the Father because he's been vindicated. By faith in him, all these realities are applied to you. Faith unites you to both the work of Christ and the life of Christ. You, you have the status of Jesus through faith before God. It's as though you were crucified with Jesus, meaning we died to sin. It's penalty, it's power, it's dominion. All our sin, past, present and future, has been dealt with at the cross. And from a heavenly perspective and a fleshy experience, and the word flesh here in verse 20 is not referring to our sinful nature, but more our, our actual corporal existence. We, we died, but we still live. We're still living. We're still fleshy beings. Everything has changed. Faith in Jesus changes your position before God and your practice in the world. How this fleshy body gets about living. Because the old drivers of sin and law have been overmastered, renewed to the degree that life is now lived in the operative power of the risen Lord Jesus. That's what's driving things. Paul says, that's the way a Christian lives to God. That's the way we please God. Through, through faith in Jesus. And, and, and the power of that is the indwelling presence of God in our lives in, through Christ. This is not easy believerism that the Judaizers feared. You don't just believe intellectually, practically, that Jesus died for your sins. But rather, 
It's your whole life transformation. You are now ordering uh, through, through, through the power, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, ordering your life around how Jesus would live, if you like, what he would do. When you place your faith in Jesus, you die with him. That old heart of rebellion is crushed. Your pride is shattered. Your life is surrendered. You die to the self that was ruled by sin. And now you live in union with Jesus. The resurrected life of Jesus that we've described is now the operational script in your life. Here is what the gospel does. Well, this is what the gospel does. The gospel is a message about Jesus. What it does is transforms us, creates us, turns us into a new person that brings us close to God, brings us into relationship with God and and transforms and changes how we live. Paul's now moving into the implications of the gospel. Here is how you will know that grace has visited your heart, that you live by this new law of faith. You will live to God, but no longer under white-knuckled religious efforts, but out of a relationship with Jesus, who did not come to bring more law, more ways of exposing your sin, but loved you and gave his life for you. Listen, this is, this is ridiculous stuff. Uh, that passage that Rose read, Romans 8, begins with this. There is therefore now no condemnation. There is no awaiting judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just life in relationship with God. So, I don't know about you. You could be a bit further down the road than me. But I will, I guarantee you, I will, through careless thought or action, or, or, or worse, through intentional, selfish behavior, thought or action, I, I operate out of my old nature. I will think some unhelpful thought, say some cruel thing. I'll act in some kind of selfish manner and then I'll play the victim. Like, ah, you don't understand why I did this. Is it it all over? Like, do I have to work my way back into God's favor? Do I have to self-loathe for a day or two? Do I have to hide in shame somewhere? Do I have to double down on my Bible reading? No, no, that's not what we have been told here. There's no condemnation. We are justified. What's the right response for a life shaped by the gospel? The right response is to run to the one who loves me, who died for me, gave his life for me, before I did one single thing out of gratitude, before I did anything that merited his love, he died for me at my worst. Listen to me. He died for you at you. You were at your worst, full of pride and rebellion, thinking you didn't need Jesus, you could do it all yourself. That is when he died for you and loved you. What, what further offense do you think you can do to stop that love? To break that relationship that's been sealed, justified. We run. 
run to the one. That's a life shaped by the gospel. To seek to be forgiven for sins that I am already forgiven for by my efforts is to nullify the grace of God. To say that Jesus died for no purpose. I got this covered. No, not at all. I haven't got it covered, but I run to Jesus in broken humility, acknowledging my sin, though vile, though offensive to God, has not cost me my relationship with God. Because why? Because it's done. It's been paid for. It doesn't lead to crazy liberation. That leads to gratefulness. Faith is the evidence that when we trust the one who gave his life for you, who loves you, even when you fall, faith faith says, I need to run back to Jesus. That's a gospel-shaped life. My life is defined by what Jesus has done and is doing. He loves me, he's for me, and it shapes how I live. It shapes how I make my choices. It shapes how I move towards my wife. It shapes how I, how I operate in my work environment. It shapes how I um, express my sexuality. It, it, it shapes all the facets of my life. But when I fall in any one of those, it also shapes how I am restored. It's not a flippant thing. Let me finish with this. Jesus will do everything for you or he will do nothing for you. You cannot combine merit with grace. If justification is by keeping rules or helping Jesus out a little bit, then his death is meaningless. Jesus is either the grace of God to save us and to sustain us and to live our lives out of or he is nothing at all.